Hebrews chapter 1, where we will find ourselves again this morning, and may I say for months to come, as we work our way through this book that I know will be an encouragement and a challenge to us. Um, As you make your way there and find your sermon notes, I want to remember with you another Bible story from the Old Testament that will pave the way to where we want to go uh, this morning. In the, the, the telling of the story of Elijah and Elisha, uh, you, you find a gripping story, particularly in Second uh, Kings 6 is where you'll find that. It's a story of Elisha in a setting oh, so different from ours and yet similar in certain respects. Uh, Elisha, it seems, was living at a certain time when there was a neighboring kingdom, Syria, that was fighting against his country, Israel. And uh, there was this little deal. Elisha was a prophet of God, and every time the king of Syria tried to attack, God kind of whispered it to Elisha, and Elisha would go to the king and say, put the armies on the left. And they'd put the armies on the left, and here came the king of Syria, and every time he'd turn around, he'd say, how do you guys know? And so he asks his counselors, which one of you is for them? Because every time I try something, they know. Well, one of them who knew the deal said, it's that prophet Elisha. He tells the king, king of Israel, what you say in the privacy of your bedroom. So the king of Syria did what any self-respecting king would do. And he said, get the army. We're going to go get that guy. So that's what they did. They got the army together and went to where Elisha was and surrounded the place. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, Elisha and his, he had a servant guy with him, helper. They looked out the window in the morning, and lo and behold, the whole city surrounded. It's a bad day. The bad guys are winning. Imagine? So the servant looks at Elisha and says, Alas, master, what shall we do? A good, smart kid. Uh, Elisha says, uh, Don't worry, something like this. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, the servant guy looks around. This part is not in the Bible, but I suspect that having gone to good Jewish school, he looked around and went, one, two, one, two, and looked out the window again and said, oh, no. Well, there was some conversation like that. And then the moment when Elisha prayed, oh, Lord, open his eyes. And God did that. And the servant, the text says there in 2 Kings, The servant saw the mountain, their area, surrounded, surrounded by angel armies to protect Elisha. And, of course, there's a story that follows of great deliverance. Now, a couple of things about that little story. Um, God opened that servant's eyes not to see what wasn't, but to see what was. At the beginning, he didn't see reality. All he saw was the the takeover of the enemy. He didn't see reality. That was only part of it. And God opened his eyes to see the other half of it, to see reality. And then he saw, oh, there's a spiritual dimension here that I couldn't see apart from the working of God. Now, 
that's a story of great deliverance as the chapter plays out. And I'll, I'll let you look at the rest of that. And in the Bible, there are many stories of great deliverance, some of them involving other stories of angels. Now, that's out of the Bible. But if you, if you are a reader of missionary stories, you will find in the, in the history books of missions, world missions, other stories of great deliverance like that. Uh, some of you perhaps have read uh, Billy Graham's book called Angels. That's just full of examples of that. I have read a number of them myself. Here's, here's another one, uh, more contemporary, certainly a, a couple hundred years ago or so. But uh, John Patton was a missionary to what was at that time called New Hebrides, Vanuatu, uh, the island, South Pacific, to the east of Australia, east of Papua New Guinea, out there uh, in, the, in the middle of the ocean. And at the time... Um, there was a large population of cannibals. Didn't that make you want to go there as a missionary too? Well, John Patton and his wife went to, to share Christ with these cannibals. Well, uh, there was a moment when this was going poorly. And Patton and his wife became aware that there were some of the native warriors who were coming for him. And indeed, before long, they heard them coming and they had their little house surrounded. And they weren't sure if it was going to be breakfast, lunch, or dinner, um, and they would be the featured guests. I'm, seriously, it was like that. So Patton and his wife did what anybody faith-filled person would do at that point. They actually they got down on their knees in that little building, and they said, oh, God, if, if this is it, then, you know, make our way home well, and if not, oh, God, deliver us. And they prayed. And they prayed. And the night wore on. They could hear the, the enemy warriors out there, but they didn't come close to the house. And they just prayed and they prayed. And dawn came and the enemy, the native warriors headed off into the, the bush and they never attacked. Well, they thought, well, that's, that's pretty amazing. And time went on. And about a year later, one of the, the chiefs of that village came to Christ. And in conversation with John Patton, the missionary, uh, he, he asked the guy, so you remember that that interesting night when y'all came uh, to, you know, check out our house. And the guy said, oh yeah, I was, yeah, I was there. He said, well, why didn't you, why didn't you attack us? And the chief said, well, it was because you had all those guys surrounding your house in white robes and flaming swords. We were scared to death. So we tried and we were waiting for a moment and we just, we left, man. Who were those guys? Pat said, we didn't have any guys. Now that was, that was the army of heaven. God delivered. Now, there are other stories. 1956, the Mau Mau Revolution in Kenya, uh, Rift Valley Academy. Amazing stories down through the ages where God delivers in miraculous ways. We love stories like that, don't we? Now, to read the book of Hebrews, which is our our study for these months, uh, you will know that this is a call to endure. But listen carefully, please. The call to endure in Hebrews is not because everything will always work out. That isn't it. The book of Hebrews is real life. It it tells it the way it is. If you go to Hebrews 11, as we'll study, and we'll be there in a number of months in that specific text, uh, Hebrews 11 is often called the hall of faith because it tells story after story of people who trusted God in unusual circumstances. And toward the end of that chapter, there's this, there's this paragraph that talks about great deliverances. God did this, and God did this, and raised the dead, and just amazing things. But in the middle of verse 35, there's a shift. 
And it switches from stories of great deliverance to a different kind of deliverance. Right in the middle, you'll see it where it says some or others. And then the stories go to people who were beaten, uh, martyred, lived in desert uh, caves. And they're described as, as those of whom this world is not worthy. So stories of great deliverance and stories of a different kind of deliverance, listen, they all fit in the stories of faith. Okay? God in his providence for his good purposes often it delivers in amazing ways, meets the need, sends reprieve, um, remission. What a sweet word. And other times in the equally good providence of God. Sometimes he sends a different deliverance. Illness, maybe death. Both from the hand of a good God. Now, listen carefully. The reason to endure in Hebrews is not because it all works out. It is because God is on the throne, whatever is taking place. It's the superiority of Christ to all the stuff around us. That's our text today, specifically the superiority of Christ to angels. That's why we started thinking about Second Kings chapter 6 and some of those other stories. You think angels are cool? Raise your hand, class. How many of you think angels are cool? That's pretty cool. But, but listen, they're the little guys. They're the little guys. Christ is the one who sends them. They work for him. And if you think angels are cool, you should be amazed at Jesus. That's the text. Okay? So I like to tell people where we're going, and then we go there, and then I'll tell you where we've been at the end. So we're going to pray together, and then we're going to go there. All right? And take a look at this wonderful chapter in front of us. Father, I thank you so much that even we could take this little extended time this morning and build our hearts of preparation for that which comes in this text. And it is, it is with deep gratefulness that we can open the word of God here to be encouraged in this world that seems to be so empty of encouragement. Uh, whatever our uh, leanings and persuasions about politics, what a difficult week we have been in and what a hard season we together find ourselves walking through. And oh, how we need you, oh God how we need to have our eyes focused on Christ and receive encouragement from the word of God. And I pray that you would do that today as only you can do. So meet us here in the preaching of your word is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Your sermon notes, of course, a section of review, primarily looking back to last week. If you weren't with us, that'll give you a bit of rundown to the background of, of the book of Hebrews and why we're studying this book even today, but those are details that I think will be good for you to, to be aware of. There's a paragraph in front of you there called today's text, and I just want to uh, inform you of kind of about how we're going to look at this. I mentioned last week, verse 4 is kind of a hinge verse. That is, it was a completion of the paragraph we looked at last week, and it's an introduction to what all we're going to look at today. And that theme then, as we'll read in a moment, looks at the superiority of Christ to angels. Uh, a bit of history that I won't step into really in its entirety, but at the time in which this letter is being written, in popular culture, there had been a bit of an infatuation with angels, kind of like all of us. Um, boy, I want to say back in the 80s or the 90s, there seemed like a lot of TV shows about angels. And it was a thing. People were all about it there for a while. And you guys, I know, if you just watched It's a Wonderful Life, you just watched Clarence. 
who I would suggest doesn't strike fear into anyone's heart. So um, it, it, a little bit different. But the superiority of Christ from angels, and the writer is going to give us in our text today seven references to Old Testament texts. And we'll talk a bit about that. But I want to read all of Hebrews 1, last week's text and today, and see the cohesion here as together we look at God's word. Uh, Hebrews 1, then, 1 through 14, as together we hear the word of God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And now he's going to support that verse. Here are his proofs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And I hate to stop there, but it's the end of a chapter because chapter two then says, therefore, so it's building another case. It's like another wave of the ocean rolling in. Therefore, that's where we'll be next week. So be prepared for that. Today's text, in a sense, well, a unit in itself continues this wonderful argument, chapters one and two, for the superiority of Christ uh, in, in all of life and all of the universe. So if you look at your sermon notes, you will see there are four elements, four headings that I want to address, uh, albeit briefly, uh, these uh, perhaps taken together or in some cases, some of the things I'm going to reference, um, these are major subjects in theology classes. If you took a seminary course on doctrine of God, theology proper, proper, you would spend days and days and days, hours and hours and hours working through the nuances of this text. And it gives me great angst to, to... kind of crush it together in one. But nonetheless, Christ is greater in his name, greater in his position, greater in his worship, greater in his role. And I think those headings summarize the argument of the writer here. 
So we want to look at those together. His main assertion then in verse 4, Christ is superior to angels. The name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The name, of course, you say, well, which name is that? In this case specifically, it's the name Son, Son of God. All right? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, I mentioned that there are seven references to Old Testament texts here that are used for support. This, In this case, verse 5, that first uh, reference is to Psalm 2, a royal psalm that we briefly touched on last week. A royal psalm, a messianic psalm, probably written with a Davidic king in mind, and yet finding its greater fulfillment in the greater son of David, Messiah Jesus. Now, uh, serious theology, uh, buckle up your your seatbelt here, and away we go. So Psalm 2, followed by a quotation from 2 Samuel 7, which this congregation knows like the back of its hand, because that's the Davidic covenant. And we keep talking about it, because it's all over the Bible. And here it is again. So it's a quote from the Davidic covenant. Five of these references, by the way, are to Psalms, and uh, two are some others. Now, I want to say this. This is a bit of a... a a sidebar about how we read and understand our Bibles. It is always my goal to continue to feed us as a congregation things that will help us as we read and study our Bibles outside this room, because I, I want you to do that. There is a lot of, of, of uh, information available that helps us think about the way the New Testament uses the Old Testament. Okay, sometimes this is a, brings question because a person will read the New Testament and say, oh, I'm going to look that up. And they'll look at the, the quotation in the Old Testament. They'll say, well, that's not exactly it. What's that about? And let me just give you a, a, a couple of things that are handles. It doesn't solve the whole thing, but a couple of things. So, so get this. Sometimes as you read the New Testament, you'll see a quotation or a reference, and it's, it is an exact fulfillment of something in the Old Testament. So you could say, this event is that, okay? Sometimes you can do that. Sometimes you look at a story or a reference in the New Testament and you'd say, more correctly, this is like that. So, for example, in the Christmas story, as Jesus uh, was taken by his parents down into Egypt to flee the wrath of Herod, and then God brought him back, and the text says, out of Egypt I called my son. Well, that's an Old Testament reference to God delivering the people of Israel out of Egypt. And so it says, it quotes the Old Testament, it says, like it says, out of Egypt I called my son. So there's an, there's an analogous relationship. This is like that. So on the one hand, this is that. On the other hand, this in the New Testament, are you tracking with me? Please say yes. Okay, is like that. Now there's, there's more, okay? Sometimes a New Testament writer will, will make a reference just a reference to say, oh, it's kind of like the bread in the desert or something like that. Or Jesus would say that. Not because he's making a major point, but because you've read that story and you go, oh, you mean it's, that's to help me understand. The story this morning I began with, Second Kings 6, I wasn't saying that the writer to Hebrews is talking about that story, was I? I was saying, talking about angels, talking about angels. I wasn't saying that Hebrews 1 is a fulfillment. I was just drawing the idea of angels to our minds. And sometimes New Testament writers do that too, with a passing reference. Sometimes it's a, how do you say it? Like they, a writer will brush up against it, and you'll go, wait a minute, are you referring to that? You didn't really say it, but I just, I smell the fragrance of that. 
And so they're just trying to pull ideas to your mind so that you'll think biblically. Well, in, in the book of Hebrews, there are a lot of Old Testament references, and they use all of those. So if you look back and say, that's not a one-to-one quote, one suggestion I would make is they didn't intend it to be. They meant for you to say, well, it's kind of like that. Okay, let's move on. So anyway, calm your heart if you read the Old Testament and say, wow, they took that out of context. We would say, that may not have been what they intended. They might have just been meaning to say, kind of like that, okay? All right. There's a big book I have. It's about three inches thick on my shelf at the office. If you want more information... I might rent it to you. It's, it's the kind of book you don't... Anyways, all right. Uh, some people have borrowed it, I know. So my point, verse 4 then, Christ is given the name Son. So let's, let's think about this for a, mo- a moment. Uh, I have a couple of uh, little marks there on your, your sermon notes to this effect. When the Bible speaks about Jesus as the Son of God, it is in reference to the incarnation, or speci- primarily this way, Um, But I want to emphasize, uh, there was never a time when Christ was not. Sometimes the term son is grabbed a hold of by some major cults to say, well, a father and a son. One is, is inferior to the other. And they begin to draw conclusions that were never intended in the Bible. And it turns into heresy, not because it disagrees with, say, me or uh, our theology as a church, but because it disagrees with the Bible. That's how you discover if something's heresy or not. It's not whether your church likes it, it's what the Bible says. And so they'll come up with a conclusion, say, Father, Son, greater, lesser. Uh, he's been around longer than this guy. The Son was born, and he didn't exist before. And they, right at that point, you start going sideways. The term Son is typically used, and I give you a quote here from John MacArthur who holds uh, that particular view. I know there are different nuances of this. Often you'd think of this before Christ came and was born as a baby at Bethlehem. You would think about Christ as the second person of the Trinity. Okay? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But the term Son is more specific to the incarnation when he was begotten into human flesh. Okay? Does that... Kind of, sort of, ring for you? Okay, so the, the, the role of son in uh, physical generation was anticipated in the New Testament, certainly. But you don't find in the Old Testament the second person of the Trinity called son until later. So this writer is making a point to say when the firstborn, as we'll talk about that phrase in a minute, is born into the world, God the Father says, this is my son. I have sent him. Okay? So he's making it an issue about the title son. And he says, God never says that about anybody else. Only, only Jesus, God incarnate. Now, I have another little bullet point here. I'm, I, and again, I'm, I'm introducing a whole number of theological strains. Some of you are well familiar with these things. Others of you perhaps are newer to some of these elements in theology. It's so good that we can think about them together. And I I say this on that fourth bullet point. In thinking theologically about the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uh, it is correct for us to read the Bible and see them as equal. Sometimes uh, theologians will use the term co-equal. That's fine. Equal in deity, glory, power, nature. They are one. And yet we see distinct roles. 
okay? Uh, I would suggest a pattern for marriage, equality, and yet roles. And I point to a couple of things here, like 1 John 4.14, where you see the phrase, the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And I give you two references from the Gospel of John, where you see the Holy Spirit. I'm using some technical language. I know proceeding from the Son and from the Father. Those two texts will give you that. But here's, here's my main, main point, all right? Just get a hold of this. Last week, I referenced a book by Francis Schaeffer, uh, a theologian philosopher. That matters. And his little book, He is There and He is Not Silent. In that book, he makes what I think is a startling claim. Uh, he says, as a philosopher with that hat on, he says, if it were not for the Trinity, I would not be a Christian. Isn't that interesting? Many Christians struggle to explain the doctrine of the Trinity, or more specifically, the triune nature of God. And they, because they struggle with it, they say, man, I just have to, I just can't, I just can't do it. Schaefer comes along and says, if it were not for that doctrine, I couldn't be a Christian. You'd have to read his writing to get the full-orbed element of that. Uh, it has to do with some philosophical things about the one and the many and particulars and specifics. And uh, Anyway, uh, I bore you silly with details. I barely could get my little brain around it. But I grabbed his main statement. I thought, oh, that's good to know. Somebody of his stature would say, I couldn't be a Christian if it were not for this doctrine. It makes sense of a number of things about human nature. I, I value that. Christ is greater in his name. God the Father speaks of him and said, of, of Christ and of no one else, this is my son. Today I have sent him. I have begotten him into the world. He never says that about anybody else. Um, that's verses four and five then. Okay, quickly. Verse six then, I'm gonna go to the first phrase and grab another one. And again, he says, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and I'm going to stop right there. I'm after the word firstborn. Okay, firstborn. Again, sometimes cults come along and say firstborn. I mean, born first. Isn't that obvious? Can you do English or not? If you have kids, there's a firstborn. And that means there was a time when that one was not. And now they're the firstborn. Uh, one of the major cults in this world says Christ was the first creation of God, and they are missing some things, a whole bunch of other things, but on this point specifically, as I have in front of you, firstborn does not necessarily mean born first, especially in the Bible, and I want to, I want to show you this, all right? So if you've got a Bible, I would really love to have you go here. You should know this text, Psalm 89. This is the psalm that begins with that familiar phrase, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord, uh, a chorus some of us learned a generation ago. But it goes on then in the middle to speak of the works of God. And in particular, in verse 20, uh, you find David, King David, being referenced. King David, of course, uh, the one after whom Christ is called the greater son of David because of the Davidic covenant as we've studied this. But David here is, is mentioned in verse 20 in this section that follows but I want you to notice, God is speaking about David and his hand on his life, and Davidic covenants is all over this text, but he comes to verse 27. There it is. God says of David, I will make him the firstborn, and then he explains what he means. The highest of the kings of the earth. God tells you what he means by that term. 
that, that it does not mean born first in terms of physical generation is evident because David was not the oldest. He was, you know, he's the little kid out taking care of sheep, if you look it up in the Old Testament story. Uh, he wasn't the first king of Israel. That would be Saul. He's the second. Saul, David, Solomon. And here God says, of David, I will make him the firstborn, the greatest of the kings of the earth. God is using the term firstborn here in terms of rank and priority and esteem, not in terms of physical generation. God does this. Now, I would quickly, as I have on your sermon notes there, send you right over to Colossians 1, one of the great Christological paragraphs in the, in the whole Bible, really, where we are there told about Christ, who is firstborn of all creation. And it's a parallel to, to, to Psalm 89 and verse 27. David, I'll make him the firstborn, the greatest of all the kings, and then the greater son of David, Jesus Christ, of whom the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, says he is the firstborn over all creation because everything was made through him and by him and for him. Nothing exists that he did not make and it was not made for him. Now, the other examples I've given you here, you can look at those. Those are three other examples of firstborns who lost their rank as firstborn for one reason or another. So they were no longer the firstborn, though they were born first there. Is that clear as mud? Did you get this? Firstborn in the Bible, when it is used of Christ, it is about rank and priority. It is not used temporally or in relation to time. Christ greater in his name, coming back to Hebrews 1, greater in his position, and then the second half of 6 and into 7. This is stunning. God the Father, when he brings the firstborn, his son, the second person of the Trinity, into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Why is that so stunning? Because the Bible is very clear from beginning to end. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you will serve. The Old Testament just says it all over the place. Curses brought on those who worship other false gods. Blessing to those who worship the one true God. You shall worship the Lord your God. I give you references here, of course. Uh, under that heading to, to Exodus 20, the, the telling of the Ten Commandments. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. That's Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. All of these that point to the priority of worship being reserved for God, for God only. And here, God the Father, when the firstborn comes into the world, he says, angels, everybody, listen up. Worship him. Wow. A statement of deity in the manger. That's what that is. Now, that continues, of course, verse 8. Uh, in contrast to the angels, uh, verse 7, uh, and we're stepping ahead just a little bit. The angels are spoken of in verse 7 as winds in a flame of fire, ministers, in great contrast to one who is to be worshipped. And I note here on your sermon notes, uh, the goal here by the writer is not to diminish angels. It's not but to lift up Christ. Christ. Angels are created beings. Christ alone is eternal. Christ greater in his name, greater in his position, greater in worship. The angels are commanded to worship him. And then in verse, this big section, verses 8 to 14, I want you to notice the terms that are used. Uh, God, the father of the son, says, your throne, O God. God, the father, calls 
the second person of the Trinity in his incarnate state. He calls him God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is from a quotation from Psalm 45. You can find it, Psalm 45, 6 and 7. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Terms God the Father is using about the Son. And again in verse 11, you, Lord, Why would you ever use that term? Why would God the Father call another Lord who is not his equal? You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hand. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, Here, identifying Christ as as the agent in creation. How about that? Uh, John 12, remember, identifying Christ as the one seated on the throne that Isaiah saw. And here in this text, identifying Christ as the one who said, Let there be light. Wow. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Uh, Throughout the rest of that text, the contrast between angels as created beings, as servants, and Christ as ruler of all, there will be a day the enemies of Christ are made a footstool for his feet. Again, that's using an older-time older analogy for if you are the, you know, the general and you beat these other guys, you can sit down, lean back in your recliner, and put your feet on your conquered enemy. It's a statement of conquering all. Okay, we might say, well, that doesn't sound very nice. That's because you've never been in an army with swords and hacked people and to save your own life. Uh, you might want to sit down and put your feet up and say, hey, I'm alive. <laughs> anyway, you have, to, you have to appreciate the analogy. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, place, a placing of Christ as the victor over all. Now, verse 14, of course, kind of serves as a conclusion. The angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who are to inherit salvation. Christ is the one who made them and rules over them. Now, here's, here's where I want to go in this conclusion part under responding to God's word. I'm saying here the writer of this book, the writer of Hebrews is on a mission. His goal, his goal is to call you to endure And he does that not by telling you it's all going to work out. He knows too much to tell you that. He calls us to endure in this world because Christ is greater. He's greater than Moses. He's a greater high priest. He's a greater prophet. He's a greater king. And we're going to see all of that unfold. Hebrews 1 and 2 lay the foundation to to call your heart to be amazed at the majesty of Christ and therefore to call you to endure. All right? And I remind you of Hebrews 11 that is very, very clear. God delivers. Yes, he does every single time. Sometimes in ways we recognize as a deliverance and sometimes in his providence by allowing us to face times of difficulty and need and even death. In his providence, God does those things too. Not because he doesn't like us or doesn't hear our prayers. He loves us and he does answer prayer. So the writer to Hebrews calls us to endure. Isn't this a crazy time we're living in? It would be so wrong if we were to preach and say, endure in this world in hope and faith because it'll all work out. I mean, all this stuff. Will it? Well, sort of, you might say. Ultimately, sure. But but listen, if together this week, uh, last I saw there's 165 or so people signed up for community groups this week. They'll all launch this week. If we spend our time in community groups talking about ain't the world a bad place, we missed it. Okay, don't do that. Time spent in our community groups should be spent talking about the greatness of Christ. 
Do you want to walk out of that group hopeless or hopeful? What would you like? So if you walk in all primed up to say, yeah, but the world's going to hell in a handbasket, I'm going to say, hey, you know what? Uh, Maybe. But just relax on that for a minute. And let's talk about Christ who holds it all in his hands. I want to close with a little story that is close to my heart, out of my life, and I think is a fit summary of these things. Christ, far greater. Uh, Years ago, it was back in the 90s, our kids were young, and uh, preschool, certainly, I could look it up, I know, because I recorded some things about it, and I, I could find the date. But it was a, there was a fall storm coming, and uh, it, it was a deal. I mean, all over the news, one of those big storms with power outages anticipated, and trees are supposed to fall, and a lot of rain, and I think, boy, winds in excess of 90 miles an hour. And so there was a, several days of preparation. People are pulling in their lawn chairs and checking the roof and looking at trees and saying, when do you want that to come down? Should we get the chainsaw out now? And there was a lot going on. And Fred Meyer, you know, the grocery stores, people are buying Campbell's soup. Power is going to be out. And toilet paper is going away. You know how that goes. Um, people are preparing. And we were too. Because um, I was taking in the stuff and... You know, little kids running around, and you're getting ready to talk about, you're talking about power outages and, and things. Get them ready. Well, um, the night before the big storm, I remember putting the kids to bed, and we're, I think back in that day, I think we were working on memorizing Psalm 23. So we did all that, and lights go off, and you start to walk out the door, and you, I will never forget the little voice in the background. You're a parent. You understand this. Daddy, in the dark, is there a storm coming? And instantly, my brain went into hyper mode. I could have said, ah, sure, whatever, go to sleep. That was the wrong moment. So I went back across the room in the dark and sat down next to a little bed. And we talked about the storm. And I remember thinking instantly, oh, honey, (laughs) you have no idea. Yeah, there's a storm coming. It's called the rest of your life. That's that's where my brain was going. (laughs) You're thinking the wind's blowing. Oh, no, no, no. That's not the half of it. Yes, honey, there's a storm coming. But I remember the little conversation there, as you do on a a preschool child's level, where you say, yeah, honey, you know what? There's a storm coming. But listen, it's going to be okay. Because you know our families, we're kind of prepared, and mommy and daddy are here, and it's going to be a big adventure. We're going to take care of you. You, you try to instill hope and faith and things that, you know, we got it. It's okay. Is there a storm coming? Are you in one? Where do you find hope? What do you hold on to? Well, listen, the book of Hebrews points you to Jesus. Again and again and again. In words that are simple to understand, and in, th- in, and in theological expression that blows your mind, you struggle to get your arms around. All of it intended to point you to Christ so that as the storm blows, rather than being just rocked, you'll say, yes, I know the storm. I do, I do. But my hope is in Christ. He is my rock. He is my fortress. My hope is in him. I hope that's how you live right now. Okay? I hope it is. You hold on to Jesus. You do it greater, greater than the angels. Would you stand with me? Let's, let's pray together as we head out into yet another exciting week. Our Father, how good that we can open the word of God together.
I thank you for this chapter where the writer just phrase upon phrase, Old Testament text upon Old Testament text, just wants to barrage us with the greatness of Christ. Not just to blow our little minds, but that we would find hope and strength to endure by seeing again the greatness of Christ. Oh God, overwhelm us again and again and again. Thank you for each person who's part of this congregation. I pray for this week ahead that our hope would be in you and that as we meet in our groups, dozens and dozens and dozens of us, that our conversation will be filled with the glories of Jesus. Help us to that end.